Hello and welcome to this week's Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today in my lounge by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very good, thank you. Yeah, so apologies, listeners. We're, we're about half a day late, but uh, I think it was train troubles, wasn't it, yesterday, Phil? They were, yes. <laughs> again. Again, again. Uh, but, you know, we get used to them after a while. We do. Talking of train troubles, one of the things we wanted to talk about this week is First Group, um, one of your bets noirs of companies, you, one that you really don't like, and we'll go into why in a minute. We're going to talk about BT, because it's, it's a subject of one of the subjects of your column this week, and uh, obviously there's been some very interesting news overnight uh, on the political front that concerns that company. We're going to talk about Fevertree, which I know has been uh, an investor favourite, um, but... The wheels might be coming off a little bit, so we'll talk about why. And uh, what else we've got? Greg's, British Land, Utilities, Avon Rubber, if we've got time. But let's, let's start with, with trains. What's happening at First Group? Uh, well, this is the problem. I don't think any, any, <laughs> any outsider really knows what's going on with this company. Um, you don't like the numbers, basically, the, I, way, the way they report. I've never liked the numbers. Um, uh, this, is a, this is a company that I actually covered as, a, as an analyst I, when I was a transport analyst. And I did have a number of disagreements with the company back then um, about about their accounting, about the, in my opinion, the aggressive use of exceptional items and adjustments. And I think I've, I've you know, I think I've been looking at this company on and off now for for the best part of twenty years, and I don't think I can ever remember seeing a set of results and a set of an income statement without an exceptional item or an adjustment. Every year, this company, it's either restructuring costs, impairments, provisions, all these kinds of things. And um, I think it's a massive red flag. And I I think the shares took a massive hit yesterday. Um, And this is a company where there's... There's been a lot of pressure on on the board of directors to to shake it up. It's seen as a an underperforming company with some good assets, and I actually agree with that. What are the good assets? I think the the U.S. school bus business yeah. is an extremely good asset. Big yellow buses. This, yeah, this name is it? Okay. Yeah, it's a utility. It's like a utility business, really. And if you look at the way that National Express is running its school bus business. It's doing a lot better than than first group is. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, National Express is being run by the ex-finance director of first group. Well, let's hope they don't adopt some of the reporting practices. <laughs> no, no, Na- National Express is, is one that I like. Good. I think it's, in, it's a very well-run company. Um, the, Dean Finch, the guy who is running National Express, has done a really good job with it. Um, first group, I the the numbers are all over the place. Um, there has been a number of strategic errors over the years, um, most notably in the noughties, going and buying Greyhound, which was a big school bus operator, but also this long distance coach operator, and. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember somebody somebody once saying to me that they couldn't understand why anybody bought Greyhound because the only people who would got who would get on a Greyhound bus were people who've just got out of the asylum. <laughs> <laughs> because actually, it's a friend of mine. Because you have to be crackers to actually just sit on a bus and just 
sitting for hours and hours. And of course, low cost <laughs> low cost airlines have really hammered that business. Yeah, no. Some friends of mine got on a. I think they got on a Greyhound from uh, Houston to Austin in Texas, yeah. and yeah, we're slightly terrified by the whole experience, especially when it stopped outside the uh, the county jail on the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and this has caused no ends of problems. You know, it's saddled the company with lots of debt. And then, of course, it's made a number of mistakes in the UK rail market. And getting the, getting the, um, getting the, its numbers wrong or overpaying for franchises, Southwest Trains, TransPennine. And those, those have destroyed value for shareholders. And we have some activist shareholders now trying to, trying to shake it up. And it seems like it's not going very well. How do you shake up a business like that? I, mean, what I think you, you have to break it up. Yeah. The, pro- the problem is, is that you've got, you've got a lot of liabilities with it. So you've got large amounts of debt, you've got pension fund issues, you know, quite a big pension fund deficit on, on first group. So you've got huge amounts of claims on the cash flows. So the, the principal attraction about buses and, and trains but buses probably more than trains is that the the cash flow is quite steady you've got assets that last 15 years before they need replacing you haven't got a lot of growth but you've got reasonably steady steady demand and in in America you can buy out a lot of private operators and build up the size of your fleet and build yourself quite a nice business if you manage it well Problem is, is that First Group's got so much debt um, that a lot of the trading cash flow that comes from these assets is not going to shareholders, it's going to lenders. Mm. Then you're going to pay the pension fund deficit. And, you know, the other, the other issue I've got, you know, is with, with the rail contracts. You know, the Southwest Trains and the TransPennine, which were going to make significant losses over their lives um, to the end of their franchises, they've been allowed perfectly legally to take what's known as an onerous contract provision, which is when the, they recognise the losses up front. So if, if you're going to make 100 million of losses, you set up a... Over the, over the lifetime of the contract. Yeah, say the next five years you expect to lose 100 million from yeah. TransPennine. So you create a provision, onerous contract provision for 100 million. And that's treated as an exceptional item. So you, so what they say is, ignore that. That's a one-off. So you recognise 100 million up front as an exceptional item, which is not on the adjusted numbers. The next year, the 20 million loss comes through. But you utilise a provision of 20 yeah. to net it off. Now, I've had a long, hard look at this. There are to see where, if this gets adjusted for, in the adjusted numbers, and I don't think it does. I think I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I've had a good look, and I think this is flattering the adjusted or was flattering the adjusted numbers. There has been a bit of change in the provisioning in, in yesterday's results, which I haven't had time to look at due to lease accounting and all this. You know, just shows you how what a minefield this company mm-hmm. is. But there are things in there that I don't like, and of course, the truth is when you go away from the profits and you start looking at the cash flow performance of this company. So you will see 
you know, you will see the lot the losses will come through. So the twenty million of loss actually is a cash loss. So you see it in the cash flow statement. You see the cash paid out for insurance claims in the cash flow statement. You see the extra amount of money paid into um, the pension fund above the charge in the income statement. So I, I've always held that, you know, if you look at something like free cash flow, which a lot of investors look at, and compare it with the post-tax profits or the net income, often you'll often with this company you'll find a big difference. The free cash flow is a lot less. Yeah. It just shows the value of doing a bit of digging around the, uh, the account sometimes. It's, uh... Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I know it would be lovely if we could just all invest without having to look at this kind of stuff. But, you know, inve- there's no getting away from the fact that investing is all about money. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we've written, we've written quite a lot on the subject of, uh, you know, accounting trickery uh, recently. We had a piece from Steve Clapham on, on audit, actually, that specifically. We, uh, Philip Ryland wrote a piece uh, on things that companies do that could be very bad, seven deadly signs yeah. uh, of, of, of things that companies are doing that, that, that could be damaging to investors. This is, this is one of them. Yeah, I think... You know, I don't want to give a misleading picture here. That I think a lot of a lot of companies, the vast majority of companies, are doing the right thing, mm. and there are some excellent companies out there that that give give a lot of detail. That for the investor who takes the time to read and go through these companies can learn a lot. And uh, yeah, there's, there's some good stuff going on there as well, and it's important to to to, to acknowledge that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned pension deficits being a problem for First Group. Yeah, uh, pensions are uh, obviously a big problem for BT. Let's move on to that. Well, maybe maybe Jeremy Corbyn's going to come and take it all on. Excellent. He can take over every large company with a pension deficit and uh, put us all out of our misery. So he wants to. He, what's the plan? Ten, take ten percent of BT into national ownership. I mean, this this story is. You know, we're talking what half past nine on a Friday morning. This story is developing all the time, but it seems that the sort of headline that we're reading is that the Labour Party wants to give free broadband to every home and business in the country, and it wants to. I don't think it wants to nationalise British Telecom. I think it wants to nationalise Open Reach, right? Which is the which is the infrastructure side of it. Okay, okay. Which, but it's still part of British Telecom, right? It's now. the biggest. I mean, it's it's, it's the biggest, most valuable chunk of BT. It's actually quite. I mean, to my mind, quite contentious that it's still within BT. There, there was an, an opportunity for the regulator a few years ago to split those companies up, split BT's marketing division. Yeah. From its from its network division, yeah. Open Reach, and I and I think they should have done it to be to be honest at that point and created two separate companies, but they didn't. Yeah, I think BT's on quite shaky ground actually. Up until very up until very recently, if you look at you know look at the accounts of Open Reach, this company has not really been investing heavily in new assets. Mm. Um, one of the common criticisms of BT is that it's been trying to do fiber broadband on the cheap so instead of instead of actually putting fiber optic cable up to everybody's doorstep or into their premises or called fiber to the premises it's been doing something called fiber to the cabinet where it takes fiber optic cable from the local telephone exchange takes it to a green cabinet on the street and then from the street it's then pushing trying to push faster speeds through the old copper now that's what what we've got here yes yeah and actually, some of it's not too bad from a, from a personal point of view. 
Um, you know, I live about 300 metres from the green box. And I can get 65, 67 megabits per second. Mm. Which, you know, when you've got kids gaming on there and you're streaming video or whatever, it actually works not too bad. The problem is, is going forward, as we get more connected, you get more... I think eventually, I think television's going to be over the internet. Cause oh, because well, I mean, of obviously, Netflix, Netflix yeah. is, these subscription <coughs> services, already, streaming services already are. And, we, you know, we, we, we suffer the, buff, the, the dreaded, you know, wheel of buffering <coughs> yeah. quite regularly. But you look at things like, you know, 4K or ultra-high definition um, broadcasting, you, you know, you need probably for a live... If you want to watch a football match in 4K, you probably need 40, 45 megabits per second mm. just for that. And... You know, we see the trend now towards streaming rather than watching programmes via satellite or via a TV area or via cable. Or well, we actually do see it by cable, which is Virgin is actually actually quite well placed for this. The problem with Virgin is it isn't everywhere, and um, hence why BT needs to, to step up. Yeah, so, so, so it hasn't been investing properly in its infrastructure. It has been investing heavily in sports rights. Yeah, which which I mean, I, I must admit, I think that's a somewhat misguided strategy. But there you go. I well, I, I don't see how it, it competes on content. Well, we, we got some, some news overnight on that as well, and um, various newspapers. Re- I, I noticed that the company didn't make an announcement to the stock exchange this morning. It may have done while we're talking, but the rumour is that BT has uh, retained its Champions League and Europa League rights for. Next for between twenty twenty one and twenty twenty four for one point two billion pounds. Yeah, that's a big chunk of change. Yeah, so four hundred million a year, and that's before, that's before your programming costs. That's just the amount you hand over to UEFA. So, I mean, that was the question you were asking this week. I mean, you know, do they actually need this? Is is Champions League football the thing that's going to fix BT? And no, it's not. <laughs> it's not, um, in my opinion, because if you just look at the results, right. BT's consumer division profits are not growing, right? So you're throwing 1.2 billion at um, Champions League. You're then throwing another big amount of cash at Premier League plus all the other rights. And it seems to me that this this money, all this money is doing, is defending their broadband business. So they will look at it. I don't think Sky Sports or... Um, BT is making anywhere near acceptable return on investment on sporting rights. It's used to cross-sell mm. other things. So they all look at it on, right, we pay this and we can retain and win fibre broadband that's paying 50 quid a month or whatever. And we'll look at the return on investment that way. I'd like to know what that number is because I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it split out by BT. It may have been, but I've not, I've not looked at it. And seen and seen that, and it just seems to be an incredibly expensive way to defend your market share because BT probably felt BT felt it had to do this because Sky was essentially trying to take all its broadband customers. This was about six seven years ago, and BT said, "Well, if you're going to take our broadband customers, because the last mile has been opened up to competition." Um, they say, right, we're going to take you sports companies. And I, I think I don't think it's worked for BT. 
It may well, it may have worked in terms of stopping the rot in terms of because but it's not worked for consumers really because whereas whereas before people had to pay one company to watch football, I now have to pay two. Three, if you inc- include Amazon. But this, I mean, this is this is the way content has been going for a while now. I mean, you know, you used to want, have a telly and or maybe a Sky subscription. So you maybe had yeah. uh, a free telly, a free, you know, set top box, and you paid a little bit for Sky. Now you've got to buy Netflix, you've got to buy Amazon, you've got Apple TV, you've got yeah. Disney, Disney TV coming out. I mean, where does it where does it end? And I do wonder. And obviously BT for uh, for the bit of sport that you don't get from from Sky. Yeah. Where does it end? It's becoming very expensive for consumers now yeah. to have all these subscriptions. But BT, I've got a little bit of sympathy for BT because you know it has its consumer division, and you know that's a free for all. So BT runs the network, and. Anyone can then go into the telephone exchange and put their wires in and connect broadband to your house. And it's the open reach side which needs sorting. Now, what BT's saying to the government and to Ofcom, it said, look, we'll do full fibre. Now, we're going we're gonna to spend four billion a year on open reach. We're going to try and get 4 million fibre to the premises by 2021 and we want half the country done by 2025. But we're only going to do that if you can allow us to make a return on that expenditure. And I think this is when politics becomes the big issue. You know, Is BT going to be allowed to make a return on its investment? Because you've got other companies like City Fibre, um, that have been trying to get involved in setting up fibre networks. So BT may not be the only game in town here. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty now with BT. Yeah. And I think, I think if you look at its cash flow and you look at all these competing demands on it, um, you know, the dividend, the dividend now is beginning to look... It's not a question of... I think if it's going to be cut, it's going to be when and by how much. I mean, which is presumably what I mean. The only reason to own these shares right now would be the dividend. Yeah. Uh, well, I I don't know. I, I, you know, you ask yourself what what actually makes the shareholder better off for BT. Is it a large dividend that people worry about all the time, or should they actually cut the dividend? In, you know, the the bull case for BT is you cut the dividend, you get a deal with the government to get a return on investment on fibre. You invest in that, and then maybe you generate the cash flow and pay the pension fund deficit down. You've got 5 billion net pension fund deficit here, which is 5 billion of value that's going away from shareholders. Use the cash flows to pay the pension fund deficit off, and you can create value that way. But it's a huge job. It's It's a massive job. This is turning around a leaking super tanker. I mean, it's... uh, Yeah. It's... so why would you be, as a shareholder, interested in sitting here hoping that somebody can do this? I just don't see. Well, we've had the, we've the, been the here. We've been here before, haven't we? Yeah. You know, I think you know. I can think the last twenty years, BT has cut its dividends twice, and and, and I think it cut it cut it after the dot com boom went to bust, and then I think it cut it again. And then it's looking like it's going to cut it again. Painful. I think the problem is is that there's a lot of price deflation in this market. Mm, mm. So it's for, the, these companies don't seem to have a lot of pricing power. Yet they've got these networks which are 
expensive, they are loaded up with lots of debt, and it's very, very hard to create a growing surplus every year that you can pay out to shareholders. Yeah. I wonder what Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn sees in the uh, is in BT. <laughs> They don't sound like they're know, sens- Buzz- sensible investors. <laughs> Buzz- Busby's going to be coming back. Do you Busby? I do remember Busby, yeah. yeah. And I remember Sid. But yeah, I, it's a difficult share, BT. But yeah. obviously one that's uh, got a lot of interest at the moment. Mm, not necessarily for the right reasons. Should we talk about Fever Tree? Yeah, I've actually written quite a, a long piece on, on Fever Tree in, in the magazine this week. And it's, it's, a, it's a share that you know, I'm interested in, lots of people are interested in, because... It's an interesting product. It's a very interesting business. It's been very successful, very profitable business. Um, but it seems that you know, if you look at the share price the last month, I think the last month it's off best part of twenty percent. And the company's been very quiet um, since its interim results in July. And I think there's a growing worry that there could be either a profit warning or a, a downgrade to profit forecast because the weather's the weather has been poor compared with last year. Well, here in the UK? In terms of the summer, yeah. The summer's boiling. No, not compared with last year, it wasn't. It's, it wasn't bad enough there to not a, drink gin and tonic. No, but I think also the fact that you've got the mature... My, my concern with Fever Tree has been that it's been a, a business that's been running on one cylinder... And that's the. It's been a predominantly a UK growth story driven by tonic and the gin boom, and I think there's a lot of signs here that this market for fever tree has peaked, and it's getting much harder and harder to keep on growing, and the American business, they've got all the distribution. It's a completely different market, and. Even from a low base, that doesn't, the growth there doesn't seem to be coming through. Now, have we got detail on that? When was the last time we saw some, uh, some uh, detailed oh, numbers from the US? Oh, in, in um, July. Right. I mean, last year it did 35 million of sales. And it's put all these national distribution agreements in. And if you look at the annual run rate in July, it's gone from 35 to 40 million. So, 15%. Yeah, not not enough. You know, not, not what it you, know, you, you know, if you want to believe in this, you want to see you want to see the sales double. You know, if you looked at what the sales growth you were getting from the UK three or four years ago, you're getting like seventy percent growth in sales. H- had it been uh, telling the market though that it was going to deliver rapid growth in the US, I mean, if there's a profit warning, it's because it's not delivering on its expectations. What are the, what are the expectations? Why is it going to miss right. them? Right. So we look at the expectations. So you know, one of the ways you look at the expectations, you just look at the valuation of the shares. So the valuation of the shares is high. That means the expectations are high for, for future profit growth. Yeah, but so, the company the company management do not necessarily don't set its share price, so they can't. No, they, they can't stop the market being over enthusiastic. No, but they do it. issue guidance. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. the house broker, you know, having been you know a analyst for house broker, what they don't like, or a good management does not like, forecasts forecasts out in the market that are undeliverable, 
you know, as a company manager, you want your broker to have forecasts that you can beat. And, you know, the valuation of fever trees come down a lot. You know, the PE has come down from 60, 70 times to now about 30 times. On a, that's still high, right? And if you look at the earnings forecast, this year earnings are only forecast to grow by about 5, 6, 7%. But between 2019 and 2021, growth is about 27, 28% over those next two years. And you've got to look at this and think, how are they going to do that? If you're only growing at 7% now, then if the UK is, is um, you know, stagnating mm. or plateauing, then you've got to believe that the European business and increasingly American business is going to take up the slack. And I expect the American business to keep growing. They've won accounts with national retailers, which will come through in the second half of the year. But, you know... Some of the some of the signs in, in the UK are, are not great. You've got increased competition. So this is supermarket owned label stuff, particularly supermarket owned label. But you know, companies like uh, going to Waitrose, for example, you know, which is you know where a lot of sophisticated G and T drinkers may do their may we, do their shopping. We don't have a Waitrose here. No, <laughs> but you know they've got a very good good range of of sort of upmarket tonics of mixers and you know you've got Fentimans which is gro- you know Fentimans sales grew by 30% last year is it alright okay you don't have my kids like then but, um, um, and that's not just tonic but that's just the general pre- yeah, premium yeah, yeah. mixers uh, and you've got um, another one that Waitrose has started called Double Dutch which is um, got very good reviews supermarket owned label trying to get in on this so you do have you do have competition. So, so, so can we get, it's a bit of a moat issue, I, I suspect here. You know, you talked about pricing in respect of BT, and uh, you know the, the telecoms has become saturated yeah. with with service. You know, are we going to be saturated with with drinks mixers? It's an exactly a moat issue, and obviously the the, the moat here is the brand. You see, because you have to ask. You know, one of the key things about moats, or you know, moats. You know, what what has a company got? to stop its competitors taking business away from what's it got that's hard to replicate where fever tree's done a brilliant job is creating a brand but if you look at like the barrier to entry here you know fever tree itself says that actually barriers to entry may not be as high because well, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's not really... I mean, it no, is a company, but it's not really a company. No, no, it's, it's virtual. A, yeah, it's, a, it's an ingredients and marketing company. Yeah. So, it, so, so it's outsourced. It's outsourced yeah. the, the, the manufacturer, the bottling, and the distribution to third parties. So why can't somebody else do exactly the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, so you've not got these sunk costs... You know, if I want to take BT on in fibre, I've got to go and lay a load of cables, and it costs me an absolute fortune. Um, if I want to set up a drinks business, I just I can partner with a third part third party manufacturers and distributors. It's not easy, you know. And Fever Tree has, you know, you've got to give it some. The branding has been superb. Hmm. It's part. It's partnering partnering now with all the big spirits companies. But this, this distribution has been good as well. I mean, they have done yeah. a tremendous job of getting getting into the uh, absolutely the, the, the sort of uh, restaurant know, and pub trade. Yeah, and then partnering with the likes of Diageo and trying to sell these mixer drinks. 
But I, I just still think that, you know, gin and tonic in the UK is a fantastic business to have. And I'm not sure those similar businesses exist in Europe and in America. Mm. Because I think if you've got this, pre, this trend towards premiumisation of spirits, which is what we're led to believe, just read Diageo's results. Yeah, look at my drinks, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to buy a premium whiskey or something, you're not going to add a mixer to it. God, no. All right? Certainly on... Coke in a single malt. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's things like tequila, which, which can be mixed. Um... So I think I think Fever Tree is up against it. I think the shares the shares are still very richly valued, mm. and therefore the expectations baked into the share price are high. You may not get a profits warning for 2019 because I think the run rate on 2019 is probably all right. I think it's 2020, 2021 figures that you've got to look out for here. So yeah, anyway, possibly challenging times ahead. Definitely something that investors should be circumspect about. Don't. Pretend that everything's always going to go great. Yeah, just I mean, take stock sometimes. I think this this has gone from moving from a, a, a momentum share where you get upgrades every few months, and those upgrade that source of share price appreciation has gone. Mm. It's now being appraised quite rightly on cold hard facts about business, which is what we like. Which is what we like. We like. So, let, so let's go. Uh, let's stick to the sort of uh, buying stuff uh, to consume yeah. uh, end of things and to wet Greg's. Now, I've eaten not one, but two vegan sausage rolls this week. Oh, really? And they're actually quite nice. Um, but they're not exactly flying off the shelves. There was a great big pile of them. So, you know. But Greg's, nevertheless, is doing fantastically well. Uh, there's a, there were a few worries. Uh, we, I think we tipped these you know, a couple of months ago and the price came down. But this, week, this week's numbers were stonking. They were. And I, I, I think there's more to it than, uh, than vegan sausage rolls. I, I think the vegan sausage roll is a, a tremendous marketing uh, it is. G- gimmick. Very interesting, actually. Uh, but, but, but it doesn't drive that business. Just as an aside, it's like the vegan sausage rolls, is, I think I'm led to believe, I think I'm right in saying this, that it's corn. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, right. it's, it's corn. Yeah. Premier Foods used to own oh, corn. Oh, don't, don't right? get me started. I've and they, about this and they sold it off. I mean, you just think, for goodness' sake, you know yeah. what? What an opportunity that's been missed with, yeah, I, with this. So I, I live in a vegetarian household. Not one hundred percent vegetarian myself. I eat fish, but uh, but no, I, I I I've followed this this side of the market for years, and the Premier Foods thing, I couldn't believe it yeah. when they sold corn. To me, it was the most valuable part of the portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Although and, Mr. And Kipling's cakes apparently making a comeback for this week. Oh, are they really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, they are exceedingly good. <laughs> Indeed. But <laughs> although, although fondant fancies, French fancies, you know, yeah. the ones with a little bit of cream in the top. Yeah, not vegetarian. No, unbelievable. <laughs> we die. My favourite. I can't eat them anymore. Sorry, that was my fault. We, we, we digress, but <laughs> we do. But no, but, but no, Greg's. I, I, Fantastic success. This has always been a very well-run business, and largely because it's it's vertically integrated. It's got its own bakeries, it makes a lot of its own stuff, um, cuts out the middleman, and it sells stuff at very nice, very very attractive prices. It offers great value for money. Well, the vegan sausage roll is a pound. Yeah, you know, fantastic, right. fantastic value for money. You sell a lot of them, and you put that over, you know, fixed cost base. Happy days, 
But I, there's more to this. Greg's has come, come up against a lot of problems with the high street. Fewer people visiting the high street. Numbers going down. And it's worked incredibly hard to change its business model. To move from where people aren't going, which is the high street, to where people are going. So train stations, motorway service stations, bus stations, university campuses... Very, very much like, you know, W.H. Smith travel business. Mm. You know, it shows you that this theme of moving to high footfall areas, if you've got a business that can exploit that, then you can do well. And this is, this is for me, is, is why Greg's is doing well and probably will continue to do well. I think a lot of it's priced in. Yeah, well, we, I mean, that's, that's the concern that we, we saw, perhaps, that's seen the share soften a little bit over the past, past few weeks. But then... You say it's priced in, all of a sudden they deliver uh, an outstanding set of results and boom, off to the races again. I think to be fair, you know, to be fair to them, they're up against really tough comparisons as well. Yeah. So they're delivering stonking figures on stonking figures. And if that can keep going and you get more upgrades, then the share price can go up. Well, I'll definitely be buying a few more vegan sausage rolls, so uh, yeah, know, very good. I'm sure it won't move the needle, but uh, there you go. Uh, let's, uh, let's finish off talking about the high street because we've, we've had quite a bit of property news this week from the big REITs. British Land was a company I know you were, were keen to mention, yeah. and, and this is a high street problem that, that they're suffering from. Shopping and shopping centres. Shopping centres. Shop, I say, high, I say yeah. high street. Yeah, using it in the in the broader sense of people going out and, and shopping. Yeah, it's this is this is a this is a problem. I mean, so British land is essentially it's, it's, a, it's about twelve billion, just under twelve billion property business in terms of the portfolio mm. value. About forty percent of that is retail. So the likes of Tesco, Tesco is its biggest biggest client, about seven percent of its of its business, and then about fifty five percent of it is offices, and a lot of that is in London and the southeast. So there are some good assets here, um, but we've seen a big hammer blow this week um, with a ten percent reduction in the value of its retail portfolio because of all the problems that we're seeing. With retail, we we had some hideous numbers last week, week before from Into as well, which is like yeah. big, big retail. Yeah. Uh, so this this is a thematic a sector thing. It's not a absolute bad absolutely, absolutely. But obviously, you know, you look at it from a total re- return perspective. You know what what you want to see is you want to see your net asset value growing, so your assets less your liabilities growing, and then you want to see obviously with a REIT, real estate investment trust. Um, you want to see, you know, you're going to see 90% of your profits paid out to shareholders via dividend anyway. So you want to see the return from NAV growth and, and income income paid to you in the form of dividend. Obviously, a 10% hit on the value of your retail is, is not helping. But the other thing that's not helping is that these companies have done quite well up until relatively recently from falling interest rates, which have made the rental yields on property look more attractive. And as we've seen with other financial assets, falling interest rates leads to a rise in value. Looks like that that game's over now. And the other thing is that income growth is, on a like-for-like basis, is getting pretty difficult as well with British land. I think you've seen 5% like-for-like decline in uh, retail 
retail revenue and the office revenue is about plus one. And the NAV is, is not really growing. But, but the thing that interests me about this is if you take aside the retail side, you've, you've got some very good assets there. And I think the NAV per share is about 856 and the share price is about three pounds less than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is true. Which is true across the sector. I mean, look, yeah. at, look at Land Securities, which had numbers this week as well. I mean, the, the, their discount to NAV is about is about thirty percent. Yeah. So these these are these are distressed assets, but you know the the yield on these shares is about five point seven, and the only thing you know I think a lot of bad news is probably priced into this. You know the. Di- the market's already the market's already anticipating these hits to NAV. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at I've got the share price graph in front of me. Actually, it's in the magazine this week. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it had a terrible. I mean, the shares have been on a downward trajectory. Page seventy-two. Oh, there you go. There's another, oh. another chart for you with the NAV. Price. Oh, lovely. So the yeah. So but no, but then you know, since about you know halfway through, third of the way through this year, actually there was a big bounce. So. It seems the market can't make up his mind on what's happening with these I, I with these just, big REITs. I, I, it crosses my mind whether the, these are potential takeout targets. Mm. That if we if we, I'm loath to mention politics, but it, and, I, and I won't. But it's if you take the background of the UK, then clearly there's a lot of uncertainty. If this fog can clear, then. There's a view which I subscribe to that sterling assets, certainly income-producing assets, are attractive. Something that I've talked about in terms of the dividend yield on UK shares as well, and I think this you know this is quite lightly geared as well. It's only like thirty percent loan to value um, on on British land, mm-hmm. and and the same land sex is yeah. So- I think this is an interesting sector. I'm not saying it's not going to get worse before it gets better, but I think a lot is. Pri- I, I think it's an interesting area of the market to keep an eye on. Um, famous last words, but uh, it wouldn't surprise if, some, if, if we came in next week or two months time mm. and we turned on our computers and someone said someone's made a bid for British land or land securities. I would say, well, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I guess. I guess, as you say, though, you know, everything right now is rather dependent on what happens. Well, you know, one of over the, the next month. Yeah, one of the and, biggest uh, shareholders in British land, of course, is the uh, is the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth. Oh, is, it, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, um, they but they they made a big bet on the UK a while back, and it's, yeah. it's going to take a while. For, I mean, perhaps it's taking longer to come good than they thought. Yeah, but. we live we live in a, we live in a world that's where income is scarce. And high, high income, high yields are treated quite rightly with suspicion. But within within that, there are there are going to be opportunities. Um, now, I'm not saying that British land is you know a dead cert, but you know any of our listeners, uh, you know, I'd say this is something to maybe go and read up on and go and have a look at and see if you can find something that perhaps supports a more positive case because it. This is something. If I if I had the time to do, I would probably have a look at this because um, you've got a magazine column, Phil. You I have a magazine come back to it next magazine. week. I, yeah, <laughs> but, but seriously, but no, you do, you need to do a hell of a lot of digging. There isn't enough time. I'd need to spend weeks doing this. But we are seeing the other thing as well that we are seeing a gradual move in sentiment towards value shares. 
Yeah, this is a, just just starting to see perhaps hints of a revival in we, value. But it feels like we've been here before, and uh, yeah, I remember. I remember we did it. We did a cover a few years back. You know, uh, Algae Hall wrote a great feature on growth versus value, and we were starting to see some signs that value was sort of springing back to life. Yeah, it was around like, Halloween, so we did a sort of zombie type issue, and it, I just I'm just cautious about the whole shift back to value thing because it feels like we've been there before. I don't disagree with anything you've said, and I think that there's also a, there's obviously a trade-off in terms of business quality and yield mm. and valuation. But I think the valuation of a lot of these high quality and you know if you look at it from a business perspective, investor, you know somebody who's looking at owning these businesses outright, and you look at the return you get in terms of cash flow back. So you look at your cash flow yield. Yeah, so at the moment, it's almost like for the last at the moment, and also for the last few years, it's almost like well, the valuation doesn't matter. I'm just buying this because it's going up. Profits are going up. It's a momentum trade. But eventually, as we've just talked about with Fever Tree, is that you, you know you have to look. You have to look at what you're eventually getting back. Well, the, the momentum I, the momentum trade has shifted. I mean, so the bit the momentum the shares with <coughs> momentum right now are actually value shares. Yeah, so, be, so Vodafone is a very good example. Yeah, because you're um, get, because you're getting you protect, people are looking and thinking, right, this looks interesting because I'm getting a big chunk mm. of cash back for my based on what I'm paying for it. What investors have to do is try and reassure themselves that it's not a value trap. And I think for years, for the last few years, it's just been easy to buy the Microsoft of this world. You know, buy the S&P 500, buy the NASDAQ, buy Right Move. Yeah. You know, Hargreaves Lansdowne shares because of the high profitability. And, you know, there's been a huge bull market in this. But your actual underlying return as a business owner, as owning a slice of this, is really low now. And if you, even with the growth coming through, if you take analyst forecasts, your, your yield on cost, which is something I talk about in the magazine, it's not that great. So you've got to believe that, you, that people are going to keep on paying higher price earnings multiples, lower dividend yields for these shares. And I, I think we're getting to the stage where, and I, you know, I could have said this two years ago and be proved dead, dead wrong, but you know, you've got to look at the the balance of risk now in this trade, and it's getting it's the numbers are moving away from you. And I think looking at you know elements of the FTSE hundred, REITs, utilities, which we've not mentioned. Yeah, I, but, I know they were on your list. Yeah, but we, we'll come back to them. Another, we've got a big thing on power next week to be talking yeah, about. Yeah, you know, there comes a point in time where you just think, "Hold on a minute," and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, you know, we can't predict the future. You know, we've 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 taken the view that this is the kind of stuff that people don't want to own. Yeah, I, I so I, th- I I think it's kind of on the one hand, you you are taking a risk buying growth because it's expensive. On the other, you're taking a risk buying value because these companies Might are blow up. damaged they, they, and, and they face enormous political risk. And, quite and, 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 and turning, turning big companies or even small companies around is really hard. Yeah. So, so actually, neither side of those trades look very attractive. No. <laughs> and and these, the, the risk is with these is that they blow up in your face mm. because, because, you know, it's like the cheap bottle of wine. You know, I was I refer it to the cheap bottle of wine. You know, you think, 
I'm going to buy the cheap bottle of wine in the supermarket and you might take a, take a sip of it and the rest goes down the sink. And it's the same with shares in that, you know, you buy something because you should never buy it because it's cheap. But, you, but we've, I think we've got a situation now where you've got a lot of cheap assets where you have a situation where just how much worse can it get, you know, in terms of what's priced in, in, into mm. this. And um, that's why I actually remain quite bullish on, on uh, in fact, probably the bull- bullish I've been for a long time on the FTSE. Yeah, which is something else you also talk about in your, in your column, but we'll, we'll leave the readers to, uh, yeah, to uh, yeah, and explore that for themselves. So, yeah, I mean, truth of the matter, nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Maybe the market's got it right. Maybe, maybe the, these, these are cheap for a reason, they deserve to be cheap. And it's, you know, you'll get the the people who are very pro quality, um, and I can't dispute their arguments that you you know you are potentially safer with this. But what I'm saying is that you know you pay the wrong sooner or later. There's a wrong price to pay for this stuff. Mm. And you know, you know people could tell me that Fever Tree was a buy at forty quid because it was quality business and it was growing quickly. It's seventeen, eighteen quid. Mm. And it and it shows you that you know price does matter in the long run, and you know if you're a trader, um, then yeah okay you can part these kind of considerations to one side. If you're a long term investor, you're investing a long term horizon. You've got your IC, you've got your SIP, or you've got an income fund. Then you you, you look at it in a complete different way. Yeah, absolutely. Difficult times, either way. Yeah. Thankfully, there is a fantastic publication called The Investor's Chronicle that can help you navigate these uh, these uncertainties. Um, thank you, Phil. Yeah. Uh, I think we've just about run out of time now, but let me talk you through what else we've got in this week's magazine. Results are starting to pick up again. Quite a few bits and bobs in there. I've already mentioned the, the REITs, but we, uh, we've got utilities. We've got uh, some retailers. Uh, actually, kind of, kind of main market companies. So, yeah, it's starting to get busy. And I Oh, Sainsbury's got results as well, which I spoke about last week with Neil Wilson when he was on. Uh, we have a uh, section focus on banks and what's going on there um, with specific uh, focus on Metro Bank, which has been... Uh, a very interesting situation over the last few months. Lots in the uh, lots in the news section and, uh, and and the comment pages as usual, including Phil's uh, fantastic column. But the main focus of the magazine this week uh, is investment trusts. It's our annual investment trust special, uh, and we've got pages and pages and pages of uh, of ways that you can access various uh, segments of the market using investment trusts. They are actually a very a very great product, uh, which have been around almost as long as we, the Investors Chronicle, have. Uh, 150 years or so. Investment Trust Heroes, our guide to the market's most dependable investments. Pick it up in all good news agents and Phil and I will be back again next week. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.